Good morning. My name is Paul Junius. The scripture reading today comes from the New Testament book of Revelation. I'll be reading from chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. After all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon has fallen. That great city has fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven, and God remembers her evil deeds. Do to her as she has done to others. Double her penalty for all of her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, heart. I am queen of my throne. I am no helpless widow, and I have no reason to mourn. Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord Lord God who judges her is mighty. And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her, as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, How terrible! How terrible for you! O Babylon, you great city! In a single moment, God's judgment came on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> well read. Oh, I can, I can use the stand. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Well, picking up where Melinda left off, here on this Memorial Day, we're celebrating those who are, gave their lives or for the freedoms that we have, but this series is all about the impingement upon those freedoms that we're seeing in our culture. Uh, for many of us, this is a different America than the one that we grew up in. Uh, for many of us, we're waking up to a new nation where there's less and less room for what we believe as Christians. And there's less and less room for Christianity in the public square. Certainly, Christianity no longer holds the authority that it once did in the public. And ministers have less and less authority, and um, it's a changing world out there. And we're seeing people begin to have to pay a price for following Jesus, whether it be losing their jobs or social outcasts or losing their voice in the public square. And what does it mean for us as the church to live faithfully in a place that's not our home. And the Bible uses this word exile to describe living in a place that's not our home. And so what does it mean to be faithful as the church living in exile, living in an America that's not really our home anymore, where Christianity is no longer the majority religion, as we might say, or where our, what we believe and what we proclaim is no longer accepted in the way that it once was? How do we live faithfully? On February 28th, 1993, while attempting to serve a search warrant for illegal arms, 
A firefight broke out between the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, also known as ATF, and the Branch Davidians Cult. The firefight took place at the cult's compound called Mount Carmel in Waco, Texas. The firefight sparked a standoff between United States law enforcement and the Branch Davidians that would last an unbelievable 51 days. Backing up to 1929, Victor Hutef became the leader of a splinter sect of Seventh-day Adventists when he publishes his 172-page document called The Shepherd's Rod. The splinter sect named themselves after the document. Hutef and his followers built a place to live in rural Waco, Texas, and named the new compound the Mount Carmel Center. In 1942, Hutef changed the name to the sect of the sect to the Branch Davidians. Hutef died in 1955. In 1981, a 22-year-old named David Koresh moves into the Mount Carmel compound. In 1984, Koresh marries 14-year-old Rachel Jones. Koresh begins to gain popularity in the cult and is forced at gunpoint by Branch Davidian leader at the time, George Rode, to leave Mount Carmel. Koresh travels to Israel, And it's while in Israel that he has a vision that he is a modern-day King Cyrus the Great. See, in the Bible, King Cyrus was this Persian king who allowed the Jews to return to their homeland from their exile in Babylon. And after he travels, Koresh returns to Mount Carmel where he is involved in a gunfight with Branch Davidian leader George Rode. All participants in the gunfight wind up in court, but they're all acquitted of all charges because of a mistrial. And in 1989, Koresh is recognized as the new head of the Branch Davidians. Koresh announces his plan to father a lineage of children who would supposedly rule the world. Koresh begins taking spiritual wives from the cult and declares himself the perfect mate for all female members. How convenient. Many of Koresh's new wives are teenagers. Much of Koresh's teaching came from twisted misinterpretations of the Bible. The book of Ezekiel describes how Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. And David Koresh taught his cult that Jerusalem was Mount Carmel and Babylon was the world. They were taught to believe that someday the world, in this case interpreted as Babylon, would come to attack Mount Carmel, in this case interpreted as Jerusalem. This battle of Babylon and Jerusalem was believed to be the quintessential final battle between God and evil. And with an eventual battle on everyone's minds, the cult stockpiles weapons. And given that the cult was stockpiling weapons and that Koresh was taking minors as wives, reports of illegal weapon stockpiling and child abuse reached the authorities. And on February 28, 1993, ATF arrives to Mount Carmel on reports of weapon stockpiling. And this arrival of ATF is interpreted by the cult as the arrival of Babylon to attack Jerusalem. According to the cult members, this is the great battle they have all been preparing for. To this day, the start of the ensuing firefight is in dispute. The initial firefight lasts two hours, leaving 16 federal agents injured and four dead. And the standoff begins, lasting 51 days. For the next 51 days, the feds would attempt negotiations with Koresh, and the standoff included cutting off power to Mount Carmel and blasting the compound with spotlights, loudspeakers playing the sounds of screaming dying rabbits 
were directed at the compound in a form of psychological warfare. At 6 a.m. on April 19, 1993, the FBI drove a tank into the side of the compound, spraying tear gas inside the building. And at noon, in a horrific turn of events, fires lit by the Branch Davidians break out, and the compound is quickly engulfed in flames. Only nine Branch Davidians escape the blaze. A total of 76 people died in the fire, and afterwards, in the aftermath, as they explored the ashes, 20 people had been shot in mercy killings, a three-year-old boy had been stabbed to death, 23 children were killed, and Koresh himself died of a gunshot wound to the head. The Branch Davidians saw their compound, Mount Carmel, as Jerusalem, and they spent their lives preparing for the final battle with Babylon. And when ATF showed up, the Branch Davidians interpreted their arrival as the beginning of that battle with Babylon. But the Branch Davidians did not do battle with Babylon. Instead, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians created Babylon at Mount Carmel. Koresh dissolved marriages and took other men's wives as his own. He took teenagers as his wives. He warped the minds of his people by his teaching. And in the end, the Branch Davidians took their own lives and the lives of their children. The Branch Davidians didn't fight Babylon. They built Babylon. The Waco siege was attended by a young Gulf War vet named Timothy McVeigh. McVeigh, citing Waco as an influence, would go on to bomb the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City. McVeigh's act of terror was the worst act of domestic terrorism up until that point in America's history. His bombing would kill 168 people and injure another 680. McVeigh built Babylon in Oklahoma City. These two stories, Waco and Oklahoma City, reveal a pattern with humanity. And that pattern is simple. The pattern is humans build Babylon. Over and over again, humanity constructs Babylon. And the Babylon construction and the Babylon building began almost as soon as the human race began. Because God creates this perfect earth and he creates the universe. And on the earth he places this garden called the Garden of Eden. And in that garden he places his first two humans who have a special job. They are distinct from the rest of creation because they are created by God as his images. And they are responsible for reflecting who God is to the rest of creation. And sub-ruling creation underneath God as his spreaders of his reign. As his reign spreaders. And in the middle of the garden, God places this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree represents a choice on the part of humanity. And the choice is, are you going to embrace your role as an imager and as a rain spreader and rule the earth under me and spread my reign over this earth and continue creating and use what I've given you to continue creating and build the city of Jerusalem? Or are you going to seize power for yourself Seize the status of God himself, try to define good and evil on your own terms, and in so doing, build the city of Babylon. This tree represents a choice on the part of humanity. Are they going to do what God commissioned them to do, or are they going to go their own way, and in doing so, build Babylon? And humanity makes the wrong choice, because we seize power for ourselves, 
in an attempt to gain the status of God himself, we were not content with our role as image bearers, as rain spreaders, as reflectors, as people under God. We wanted to be God himself, and so we stretched out and seized power, and in doing so, sin entered the world, humanity was condemned to death, creation was corrupt, our relationship with God was severed, and now the process of building Babylon begins. And so in Genesis 3, humanity makes the wrong choice, seizes power for themselves, begins constructing Babylon, and then from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, we see a downward spiral of humanity as the effects of sin compound and as the sin virus affects generation after generation. Because the second generation of humanity already There's murder in that second generation. And so from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 is a downward spiral of humanity as we see the compounding effects of sin and as humanity begins constructing Babylon. And then in Genesis 11, we get this story. Genesis 11, beginning of the chapter, says this, At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. And so if we look at a map... People are moving eastward, and they're finding this plain of Babylonia, and here is where they're going to begin constructing their city. And you can see where that is on the map. It's in modern-day Iraq, and it's near the Persian Gulf, which is somewhat covered up by the arrow Babylonia there. But you can see this general area of where humanity is moving to, where they're going to construct this city on this plain of Babylonia. And so here's what the Bible tells us. It says, they began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. And so humanity begins constructing this city of Babylon, and they begin building this tower called the Tower of Babel. And this is an artist's rendition. Is Michael Santini here today? Oh, he's not. This is all for him. All right, so, but this is... uh, this is an artist's engraving. Um, if you can read his name, if you're French, I assume that's French. But anyway, he calls it the confusion of tongues. And so this is his rendition of humanity building this tower of Babel in these Babylonian plains. Well, recently, there's some exciting discoveries because in 2017, there had been a tablet that had been in a private collection for about 100 years that was found in the ruins of Babylon. There was this tablet, and a linguistics expert took a look at the tablet, and for the first time, he interpreted what it, what it said. So go ahead and roll that video, you guys. The Tower of Babel, the subject of one of the strangest stories in the Bible. But could it be based on truth? I thought as a kid this was folklore or legend. And then a lot of people still think of it in biblical terms as some kind of legend. But they don't really know that it actually existed. I'm really at the place where the tower stood. The fragile remains of the legendary city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq have revealed many secrets. The greatest of all was the discovery of a vast structure that ancient records suggest was the Tower of Babel. Ancient texts have allowed experts to imagine what the building might have looked like. But now, astounding new evidence has emerged. Inscribed on the surface of a privately owned tablet is an image that sensationally reveals exactly what the Tower of Babel looked like. 
this is a very strong piece of evidence that the Tower of Babel story in the Bible was inspired by this real building. This remarkable tablet, which has never been filmed before, dates to the 6th century BC. It was discovered in Babylon over a century ago. Unbelievably, no one realized how important it was until Professor Andrew George, an expert in ancient texts, brought its faint carvings back to life. At the top here, this part, there is a relief uh, depicting a step tower. And here, a great a figure of a human being carrying a staff with a conical hat on. Below that relief is text which has been chiseled into the monument. And uh, the label is easily read. It, it reads, Atemenenki, Zikurat Babylon. And that means the Zikurat or Temple Tower of the city of Babylon. This tablet provides the first ever image of the real Tower of Babel. It confirms the building was a Mesopotamian stepped tower and illustrates the seven tiers of the ancient megastructure. It reads from the upper sea, which is the Mediterranean, to the lower sea, and that's the Persian Gulf. The far-flung lands and teeming people of the habitations I mobilized in order to construct this building of the Ziggurat of Babylon. Incredibly, this ancient account is identical to the biblical story of how the Tower of Babel was constructed. For scholars, the tablet offers further proof that the Tower of Babel wasn't just a work of fiction. It was an actual building from antiquity. The Sodian Channel hired that announcer right out of the UFC. So, right, that's what I think when I hear that guy. But, um... Cool video. I love, I like videos like this because they bring in these experts who are the best in the world and they're like, yeah, this is actually just like the Bible said. And I'm going, wow, the Bible's true. Like, I could have told you that, you know? <laughs> so it, 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 it humors me when people are like, oh my goodness, the Bible is actually true. Um, well, of course. So, but anyway, the, the, this tower that the, that these people are building is this tower of Babel in this plain of Babylonia. And you heard that expert mention the word ziggurat, all right? And so there were these things called the ziggurats in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And what the people would do is they build these ziggurats, which are these step pyramids. And the idea is that it is a temple to a god. But this ziggurat, the tower of ba- Babel, is not a temple to some sort of god out there. It is a temple to ourselves. Here's what humanity says. They said, then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. And so we're right back to the Garden of Eden and and humans are seizing power for themselves and seizing the status of God for themselves, not content with their role as image bearers, as rain spreaders, but wanting to be God himself in our sin and in our death. And so here again, humans build Babylon over and over again. But now we begin to see a little glimmer 
of this rescue plan of God. At the same time that the pattern of humans build Babylon over and over again is in full force, praise the Lord that we have a God that loves us enough to enact a plan to rescue us from Babylon. So the first pattern is that humans build Babylon over and over again. But praise the Lord that we have a God who rescues us from Babylon. And here's the beginning of his rescue plan. It's just a glimpse into his rescue plan. There's this man named Terah. One day Terah took his son Abram, his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and his grandson Lot, his son Haran's child, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. And so now we are introduced to this man, this man Terah, in the same chapter as the Tower of Babel, and, and Terah is being called to move away from Ur. Well, where's Ur? Let's look at a map. See how Ur is in the exact same place, or in relatively the same place as Babylonia? And so God is using this man Terah as the beginning of his rescue plan to break us out of the city of Babylon. And then we get a further glimpse into this plan. He says, then the Lord said to Abram, the next chapter of Genesis now, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And so God is working his rescue plan by calling out of Babylon a new human to pick up the baton that was originally given to Adam and Eve. God is calling Abram out of Babylon. He's calling Abram physically out of Babylon because he's got to move to a different spot. And he's also calling Abram figuratively out of Babylon because God is partnering with Abram toward his goal of renewing the creation and restoring humanity's relationship with God. And then God says this to Abram. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And so God is partnering with Abraham in this thing called a covenant. And God is blessing Abram to be a blessing. Because God is handing the baton that was given to Adam and Eve off to Abram and saying, now you're going to be my rain spreader. Now you're going to be my image. You're going to be my reflector. And you're going to be a blessing to others because if others know God, they have received the greatest blessing that you can possibly receive. So he is blessed to be a blessing because he is bringing the blessing of knowing God to others. So God is calling out a new humanity out of Babylon. And God multiplies Abraham into this nation called the nation of Israel, who are his chosen people. And now God's covenanting with Israel, and he's handing the baton off to the nation of Israel. And at Mount Sinai, when they received God's law, he's giving them a choice. We're back in the Garden of Eden again, where God is saying, are you going to do things my way and be my people and be my rain spreaders and my reflectors and my images? Or are you going to seize power for yourself and do things your own way? Are you going to build what I've, what I've given you the tools to build? My city, my creation. Are you going to be my rain spiders, my reflectors, or are you going to seize power for yourselves and build Babylon? Well, we all know the choice that Israel makes. And Israel, rather than reflecting God to the other nations, they end up reflecting the other nations and ignoring God. And they begin worshiping other gods. Their leaders, our hearts are not godly. They lead the people far away from God. There is very little difference between the other nations and Israel itself. And eventually things get so bad that God allows this rising power at the time, this nation of Babylon, to lay siege to the capital city in Jerusalem, conquer it, and then export the people into exile in Babylon. And so if we look at a map, humanity that has been called out of Babylon now has to leave Judah, Jerusalem and Judah and follow that red line north and then 
southeast again into Babylon. And so we're right back to where we came from. We're back in Babylon again because humanity builds Babylon over and over again. Humans build Babylon. But praise the Lord that we have a God who rescues us from Babylon. And again, here's another glimmer of hope in the rescue plan of God. Because after 70 years in exile in Babylon, a new power rises to the stage, and this power is the empire of Persia. And the Persian king Cyrus, whom David Koresh thought he was, or whatever he thought, this Persian king Cyrus um, allows the Jews who are exiled in Babylon to go back to their homeland in Judah, to return to their city of Jerusalem. But when they return, it's not as they left it. Because the city is in ruins, God's temple is in ruins, everything needs to be rebuilt, and at the same time, they're not autonomous. They're still under the rule of the Persian Empire. And then several hundred years go by, and a new Babylon rises to the stage, and that Babylon is Rome. And the Roman Empire conquered more of the known world than any other empire that came before it. Rome is an oppressive regime and demands ultimate allegiance to Caesar, the emperor, who they declare to be a god. And so they have no trouble killing whoever they want. They are experts in torture. They are an oppressive Babylon. And again, humans build Babylon. God rescues from Babylon because now we get a definitive look into God's rescue plan from Babylon because it is into the Babylon of Rome that God sends his agent of rescue. And that agent of rescue is God's own son, Jesus Christ, who is born as a baby into the empire of Rome, into this Babylon of his time. And it's in that empire of Babylon that Jesus grows up and begins when he's an adult teaching about the kingdom of God and claiming to be the Messiah, the long-awaited one, which is a thumb in the nose to the empire of Rome. Jesus, as he's claiming to, the be, the, to be the Messiah, and as he's preaching the kingdom of his father, is poking the emperor in the chest. <laughs> Not intentionally, but it comes along with it, <laughs> right? And so it's in this empire of Rome, it's in this Babylon, that Jesus dies. And it is because of the empire, because of Babylon, that he is put on a Roman torture device called a cross, and he is killed. And he goes into the exile of death, but he doesn't stay in the exile of death. He rises out of the exile of death to new life, conquering death for us and conquering sin, and goes back to his father. And now today, we're so excited because we live in between the planned times, because he has come once to deal a blow to sin and death, and he's coming back someday. That is our hope. And praise the Lord for the second part, because we live in a nation that is becoming Babylon. This past week, this article ran in the New York Times. Pregnancy kills, abortion saves lives. We live in a culture that worships death, folks. We live in a Babylon that worships death. And when I read a headline like that, it's pure lunacy. And it reminds me of this book, for those of you that have read it, 1984, where this oppressive, oppressive empire calls things exactly what they're not. The book, in the book, this empire, this, it says, war is peace and peace is war. And that's what I see here. Death is life and life is death. Black is white and white is black. What God has declared good, we declare evil. And what God has declared evil, we declare good. We live in a modern day Babylon that celebrates death. Also this week, I saw a news story that Los Angeles has a rat infestation problem because of piles of garbage that are accumulating in the streets. Let's watch the news story. 
Huge rats crawling all over rotting garbage. It's a breeding ground for disease and fleas carrying typhus. Now, the rats are living in mountains of trash left uncollected for weeks, even months. The mayor has promised to clean it up. But I-team investigator Joel Grover found the city continues to ignore the growing garbage heaps, and that puts all of us at risk. You're getting a bird's-eye view of L.A.'s most notorious trash pile. It's in downtown on Saris Avenue, right between the fashion and produce districts. Day and night, this spot and countless others are magnets for rats that could carry fleas infected with typhus and other diseases. This national survey now ranks L.A. as the second most rat-infested city in the nation. One reason, experts say, heaps of uncollected trash at hundreds of homeless encampments, where people are literally living in piles of garbage, like outside this supermarket and inside that mountain of filth on Saris Avenue. Go was number one on the list of most rat-infested cities, so you might want to get out, cuz. Um... But we live in a Babylon where trash is accumulating in our cities and some of our most marginalized people are living in the trash and then they're creating the more trash and then we have a government that's broken so it doesn't do the job of removing the trash and then, you know, and what do you do, right? We're living in a Babylon where trash is accumulating. People are living in trash. Humans build Babylon over and over again. But praise the Lord that we have God's word that points forward to God's definitive rescue plan. Because Romans says this, the creation looked forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Our creation and ourselves, we groan for the day when Jesus will enact his rescue plan. When Jesus will accomplish his rescue plan. Isaiah points forward to what this will look like when God accomplishes his rescue plan. And Isaiah gives us the picture of a watchman who sees a king that is riding back, returning victorious from a battle with the city of Babylon where he just won. Here's what Isaiah says. Now at last, look, here comes a man in a chariot with a pair of horses. Then the watchman said, Babylon has fallen, fallen. All the idols of Babylon lie broken on the ground because the king is riding back. The king has just defeated Babylon. Babylon's broken because the king rides back and the king is victorious. And that's the hope that we have. That's the picture of the future. And John picks up on this in Revelation. And what he does is he puts us in the eyes of these kings who have gotten in bed with Babylon and who have allied with Babylon and aided Babylon. And now they are weeping over their broken city because the king has just conquered it. And here's what the kings say. They will stand at a distance, terrified by Babylon's great torment. They will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city. In a single moment, God's judgment came on you. And they say, how terrible because they were allied with Babylon but we say how wonderful that Babylon lies in ruins because the king rode back and the king conquered it and that's our hope that someday we will be broken out of this city that we can't get out of that we continue to build over and over again we have a king in Jesus Christ God's own son who rides back and breaks us out that's our hope all right let's pray